I've really appreciated the kind of space that we have between the lighting of the Advent candle and the sermon. I think it gives us some time to reflect on our shared task. If you remember right, Advent is a time for us to slow down, to be intentional about creating this kind of honest space in our lives. We, we're trying to at least reject the busyness of the season and allow ourselves to feel this need, um, this desire, uh, crafting this kind of sense of anticipation in our lives. Because the truth is, uh, we need to be ready for Christ's birth. Now, we can't be completely ready, but we are working at this together to, to have this kind of intentional time. And so here we are. We've done the work, right? At least we're getting close to completion. Advent 4 is among us, and my hope and prayer is that you have taken this season seriously because we must prepare for Christ's birth because Christ's birth is rather radically, uh, dramatically, fundamentally change brought about all of creation. Christ's birth changes how we meet God, Christ's birth should change how we see the world. Obviously, Christmas should change how we live. And ultimately, right, Christ coming into the world changes the trajectory of our own story. It changes how we relate to one another and to God and ultimately what our life looks like. Make no mistake, as beautiful as our Christmas hymns are and as uh, well-written and uh, peaceful the liturgies are of the church during the Advent season, um, so radical is this holy incarnation that really nothing should remain the same in our life. Our prime example of this, though, is really in today's text, and we hear it in Mary's song. Everything is going to be kind of flipped on its head. And so today's text is in Luke 1, the first chapter of Luke. I'll be reading verses 36 through 55, and I invite you to rise and body your spirit for the reading of the gospel. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. 
His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer, the one who invites us into this story to see its both beauty and absurdity so that we may be changed. Amen. And I think that is the truth. There is an inherent wildness and absurdity in today's text that cannot be overemphasized, although I am going to try. And we actually, I think, have to work uh, to appreciate how absurd this text is because today's heroine, protagonist, salvific forerunner, right, divine mother, Mary, is often cut and and affixed with lead into fragile glass or painted so beautifully that we must not touch the painting itself. Mary becomes someone that we elevate to the highest of pedestals in hopes that we can see a little more clearly who God is and how God chooses, God's choice, right, chooses to enter into the world. But if we stay in that posture, looking at Mary from afar, we fail to engage with her in the real world. And we fail to hear her song, a song that we too can experience in all of its absurdity and its upside downness, right? And its radical world that it is ushering in through the birth of Jesus. In many ways, our shared task for today is to prepare our hearts for Christ's birth through, through allowing ourselves to believe that Mary is telling the truth. And today we do so by allowing her song to speak above the serious academic commentary and pious religiosity, and we begin to unearth the foolishness, absurdity that Mary is singing about. It is much like a carnival, honestly. Now, I don't know where your favorite places are to travel to, but one of mine is New Orleans. I love to go to New Orleans. I love it because uh, it is so different than anywhere else uh, that I have access to on a day-to-day reality in my life. I love the food. I love the music. I uh, love how odd and weird it is and what a strange reality is to spend any significant amount of time in New Orleans. It's great. And of course, the best time to go to New Orleans, in my opinion, is Mardi Gras. There's not a better time to go to New Orleans, right? That's why you go to New Orleans, to experience Mardi Gras. Now, Mardi Gras um, 
Mardi Gras is wild and weird in its own right and life-giving uh, because beyond the debauchery, right, and beyond the, um, beyond the kind of chaos that is Mardi Gras, there is this tangible absurdity that exists in the actual events of Mardi Gras, which have actually real purpose. Historically, and I'm no carnival expert here, uh, but historically this time is set aside and for centuries people have publicly overindulged as a time to briefly, just briefly reorder the world. And luckily as an outsider, when I went to Mardi Gras, I had a guide, someone who was living in New Orleans at the time, who could walk me through the experience that is Mardi Gras in New Orleans, right? And beyond the overconsumption are these histories and customs and rituals that are performed for specific reasons. And one of those reasons is highlighting the absurdity pushing the boundaries, celebrating satire, reordering the world, and subverting the hierarchy. It's like underneath what Mardi Gras looks like from afar are these realities. And my favorite thing about Mardi Gras is that even as an outsider like me who can't understand people with Cajun accents, don't know my way around the city. Even for an outsider like me, there is this blurred line between spectator and participant. And I think it, that is the reality of today's text. That from afar, we can hear Mary's song and simply gaze upon it like Mary frozen in time in a stained glass window. But if we allow ourselves to see the absurdity of it all, we will begin to enter into this story differently. We'll begin to enter into this story as a participant, right? The coming of the Messiah, and here's why it's important, because it is so absurd, because the coming of the Messiah, who will redeem Israel, the one who is coming, who, whose coming is anticipated and proclaimed throughout Scripture, right? That announcement is not given to us by archangels. It's not given to us by high priests. It's certainly not given to us by ordained preachers. It's not given to us by emperors or presidents or people who sit in positions of power. Rather, Jesus is praised, celebrated, lifted high by two marginalized pregnant women. That's absurd. One young, unwed, and poor. The other, far beyond the age to conceive. Right? And they meet in this often forgotten about hill country of Judea to celebrate and possibly commiserate about their miraculous pregnancies. And the text then allows us in on this profoundly sacred and intimate moment between two pregnant women, right? A baby leaps and kicks in the womb. Blessings are shared between the two. Astonishment is expressed in a song or songs are sung by two seemingly insignificant pregnant women. 
So absurd is this that it remains part of our story, right? And I think that is what we must pay attention to. So odd and joyful is this encounter that the patriarchy through the history of the church, right? Those who had power leave it in our holy scripture. The story is so absurd that it remains available to us today. And to simply, right, our task is then to take it down from the stained glass and realize that this story is fleshy and embodied and earthy, and it is an appropriate preamble to the incarnation. The incarnation being God choosing to put on flesh. The root word there in Latin is carn, right? Flesh, incarnation. It's also the root word for the word carnival, flesh. Through these two pregnant, marginalized women, the world is churned upside down. The mighty, we are told, are brought down. The lowly are lifted up. The hungry are fed. The rich essentially robbed. The poor are elevated. These two women carry God's future in their womb. And Mary's song, her Magnificat, gives voice to this subversive incarnation. Mary, the text says, with haste leaves her home, probably because a woman in her circumstances, in her social location, young, poor, and unwed, and pregnant, had to find a place to lay low for a while. And off of her lips, we get the most, or one of the most prophetic words in all of Scripture, a song that is worth repeating. Here's what Mary says. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy Mary says, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary goes on to say, he has shown great, shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Coming from Mary, right? These words coming from Mary and her social location, it's extraordinary. It borderlines comical. Because this is not how we normally think of God, who is the most powerful, operating and entering into the world. And Mary's song then for us today is like an invitation. It is a proclamation, right? And in the midst of all our holiday cards, and thank you all for sending me some holiday cards with your beautiful families on them. They adorn our metal cabinets. We have them all hung up, I promise. But beyond the holiday cards and the family photos, 
Mary's song really should jump to the top of the pile. It should be the thing that it look, we look at each and every day from today until Christmas morning as a reminder that this holy family invites each and every one of us beyond our realistic expectations and numb imaginations. Mary announces, as only a mother could, a world that will never be the same. Mary sees what we often cannot, that God is creating and bringing about a new order, a world that is truly upside down. The proud scattered, the powerful removed from their thrones, and the ramifications of this are expressed clearly in Mary's wor words, right? Mary proclaims this as an already established fact. If you heard me read the text and you paid attention closely, you'll realize that she speaks in past tense. In her song, God has already accomplished these things. And by doing so, she connects all of time together through the birth of Christ, which then is great news for us. Tying the moment of creation and that creation being called good to God's final redemption and restoration of creation. The linchpin, the catalyst for it all is the, uh, is the incarnation. God choosing to show up in our midst. And Mary speaks as if it is complete because she, a young unwed mother, embodies that hope, literally. She has already seen God's future because she was chosen to carry God's future into the world. Ironically, her song foresees the end of the very social structures that ground Mary's own worth in her ability to bear a son. And behind all of it, Behind all of it is love, a divine love that is so absurd, it invites us to reorder everything. Today's text, when taken too seriously, I think can become soured prophetic speech and a little angry. But if we allow ourselves to bask in the good news, we see that nothing will stop God from, completely, uh, from completing God's redemptive work in the world, right? And if we allow ourselves to see that nothing is more important than God's work in the world, that the co-bearers and co-creators of this are us, right? That we are invited into this place, that God chooses to show up in Mary, Instead of the powerful places, instead of people with powerful means and powerful circumstances, we can have an experience with the divine that is indeed life-changing. The truth is, this text is too important to be left with powerful people. The incarnation is too important to be left with rulers and emperors and people who have the ability to influence others for their own gain. Because the incarnation is fundamentally not about power, it is about love. A divine, absurd love 
that is birthed into this world so that we may come to know it, experience it, and share it. And the best way, the only way, is lampooning the obsession we have with power and trusting the topsy-turvy news of the gospel, which was first celebrated by two pregnant women laughing, which enters the world through a young, poor, unwed mother and a child laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn. A good reminder as we move to Christmas Eve that love will always find a way because love always wins. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with gratitude for Jesus' holy mother, amen.